Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. The fourteenth talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on January 18, 2015 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 5, Translation, Installment 2, accompanies this talk. Okay, we're going to continue on. We're at chapter 4, verse 12. In, I think, the version that you got sent out to you, I don't have it marked as such, but I'm now considering paragraphs 16 and 17 as part 7. So if I refer to part 7, that may not be on the version that you have. And part 7 is starts paragraph 16 and extends to 17, and then the next section is part 8. We may not get much past part 7 today but I want to take a look at that. Okay, let me read it, and then I'll do a little bit of review as I talk about what this next section means. Now, the life-giving message of God is indeed effective. It is sharper, in fact, than any two-edged sword, even penetrating so far as the dividing line between soul and spirit, between bone covering and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Indeed, there is no creature hidden before him, But all people are stripped naked and laid bare in the sight of him before whom there will be an account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold tight our confession. Now we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He has been tried without sin in every way that accords with our likeness. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to the end that we might receive mercy and might find grace resulting in suitable help. When I was younger, my family did a bunch of things with Navigators, a Christian ministry called Navigators, and some of you may remember they had these little memory packs where you memorized verses. You have little cards with verses on them, and you reviewed those frequently and kind of memorized verses out of the Bible. I'm not absolutely sure, but I think this verse was one of those (laughs) cards You may not recognize it because most of your English translations have the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And as all of us knew when we memorized that verse, we were talking about the Bible. I mean, what else is the word of God except the Bible? This is a very important illustration of the importance of looking at how the biblical author is using his language in what particular context. We always have a tendency as Christians in the 21st century to hear a word or a phrase and think we know what that means because we all know what that means. Everybody knows what the Word of God is. The Word of God is the Scripture. Or we might alternately think, well, we know what the Logos of God is. The Logos is the second person of the Trinity. So we either consider this to be the second person of the Trinity or we consider it to be Scripture two very obvious meanings in our minds for this phrase, and so we don't go any further. It's going to be critical that we look at the argument that Paul has built to see why he is saying this here. And notice, if all you're doing is memorizing it off of a little card, there is no context for the card. It just sits there all by itself. And so you supply your own context And where are you going to get your context? From the Christian culture that you're a part of. The Word of God is living and active. And then you'll have sermons preached, and you will talk to each other, and people will comment about that verse, and they will quote that verse, talking about how powerful Scripture is. Scripture is very, very powerful. The Bible says so. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The problem is I never knew what that meant. What do you mean the Bible is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword? Mine's awfully thick, and I don't think I could slice nothing with my Bible. What are we talking about? But that didn't matter. All that really mattered was the Scripture's a big deal, right? 
isn't that verse telling us how important Scripture is? Now, as you know, I'm not dissing Scripture. I think Scripture is vitally important, but I don't think this part of Scripture is talking about that. And so we need to look at that. We're going to see another example of that in the next paragraph. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, to the end that we might receive mercy and might find grace resulting in suitable help. How often have you heard that quoted when what you need is the ability to cope with life or you need a remedy to some real dilemma or problem in your life? You want God to come in and intervene in your life and fix something or, if not fix it, give you the strength and the ability emotionally and psychologically to endure and to cope and to get by. Again, I think if we look at this in the context of the argument, we'll see that that's not what Paul's talking about. However true it may be, there may be some important truth in what we conclude about it, but it's not the truth that Paul is highlighting and underlining here. So, in order to understand both of these paragraphs, we need to realize where it comes in his argument and how it's connected with what he's been talking about. So, a brief review. What has he been talking about? If we go back, he began, I think in your standard Bibles, it's the beginning of chapter 3, I think, somewhere around there. He talks about how Jesus is more important than Moses, and Jesus is as much more important than Moses as the son of a household is than a servant within the household. Therefore, he says, because Jesus is a big deal, because he's as important to God's purposes as we know he is, therefore, and now he quotes a psalm, I don't remember the psalm number, anyway, whatever that psalm is, he quotes a psalm and applies the teaching of David's psalm to his reader's situation. Therefore, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did at Marabah on the day when they tested the Lord in the wilderness. Don't be doing that. And then he enters into this very, very specific and kind of subtle and detailed exegesis of that psalm. Is it 45? 95. There we go. Thank you. He goes into a very detailed exegesis of that psalm in order to establish exactly what David meant and to establish the fact that that remains relevant to us today. That was not something that was just relevant to David's readers. That's something that's relevant to us today, Paul is saying to his readers. Therefore, we need to heed David's warning here. And the warning very simply is, when God speaks to you, now look at the context, through his son, not just Moses, he has now in these latter days spoken to us through his son. So when God comes to you and speaks to you through his son, don't harden your hearts against it like your fathers did at Meribah, because they got cut off from the rest that had been promised to them. You don't want to be cut off from the rest that awaits you. And the only way to not be cut off from the rest that awaits you is for you to not harden your hearts against the truth that he is proclaiming to you through Jesus, his son, the Messiah. Now, that's the context then where the next thing he says is, now the life-giving message of God is indeed effective. So what is this message that we're talking about? It's the message that he just warned them not to harden their hearts against for the whole chapter before that. It's the message that he started this whole address with in chapter 1-1. God in past days spoke to us through the prophets in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. Whatever the Son spoke to us in these latter days, that's the thing that he's been talking about from 1-1 all the way through here. And that hasn't changed. So when we get to 4-12 or my Paragraph 16, now the life-giving logos, what is this logos that he's talking about? It's the logos, the account of God's saving grace, the account of God's mercy, the account of how God is going to save us and deliver us from destruction that was delivered to us through his son, Jesus. It's what we call the gospel. 
So the word of God here, I called it the message of God. I translated it the message of God. The logos to theu, the logos of God, is nothing other, nothing more, nothing less than simply the gospel message. That's what he's describing. Now, most English translations use the, what would it be, participle living. They translate the participle in Greek as living here. The living word of God. They also make it the word of God is living and active and sharper. But notice I've divided it into two statements because I think that's what Paul intends. I think he intends two statements here. And the first participle living is part of the subject. The fact that it's effective is the predicate. So I've rendered it now the living, if, if we can stick with that. Now the living message of God is indeed effective period. That's his first statement. That's the first claim that he's making. Okay, so what does he mean, the living message? This word is typically translated living in the New Testament, and this, I think, in my judgment, it is typically wrong when it translates it that way. In fact, I'm not sure, I didn't go back and look, but it wouldn't surprise me if this participle should never be translated living but rather should be translated life-giving. It's not that it's alive, it's that it grants life to us. So when Jesus is talking to the woman, is it the woman at the well, or it might be that other account in John where he talks about living waters, they translate it living waters. It's not living waters, it's not the waters are not alive, they're life-giving waters. They would understand that in a desert better than we understand that. I don't drink water to live. I drink water because I'm thirsty and bored. But they would drink water because without it, they're going to die in the desert. Water's precious in that culture, in that climate. And they're very keenly aware of how life-giving water is to them. So the waters that Jesus said are going to well up from inside of you are life-giving waters. The point that he's making to her is you have to keep coming out to the spring to get water in order to live. But if you, is it if you believe in me? I should have looked at it. But if if, if something happens, God will put in you life-giving waters that well up to eternal life. You're going to have the source of that which gives life to you, not just life temporarily in this world, but eternal life to you, Just like a spring is the source of life-giving waters to you, you're going to be given something inside of you that's going to be analogous to a spring that gives uh, life-giving water to somebody in the desert. And John comments, he was speaking of the Spirit of God, that what's going to be granted to you is the Spirit of God, which is the seal, the, the arabone, the down payment on what God intends to grant you as an inheritance. If you have the Spirit, you're going to get life. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not going to get life. So the Spirit within you might as well be a spring sending forth life-giving waters to you because that's going to be the source of eternal life to you. In John 5, John says, as they usually translate it, as the living Father has life within himself, he has given it to the Son to have life in himself. Well, the living Father... I mean, obviously God is alive, but I don't think that's the point that Jesus is making. As the Father who grants life has life in himself, and what he means by that is, as the Father who grants life has the authority and the wherewithal to grant life to you, and he has that authority within himself, he has given it to the Son to have life in himself. He's delegated that authority of deciding to whom he's going to grant life. He's delegated the authority that he has intrinsically within himself and made it so the Son inherently has that kind of authority within himself. The Son is going to decide who is going to live and who is going to die. And he has the authority to decide that. That makes him life-giving in the same way that the Father was life-giving. Well, we could go on and on, but the point is, Living here does not mean living. Living, I think, means life-giving or life-granting. 
So why would the gospel be life-granting? Well, I think we know the answer to that. I mean, the whole book of Hebrews is going to resolve itself into the point that if you believe the Son and the gospel that he teaches, you will be granted life. If you reject the teaching of Jesus, reject the Son and reject the gospel that he teaches, you will be cut off from life. It's very, very simple. So this gospel message is a touchstone of whether you will be given life or death at the end. So it is a life-giving message for anyone who confronts it and receives it and embraces it as true. It's life-giving. So now the life-giving message of God is indeed effective, period. Now, calling it effective doesn't mean much, doesn't seem to do much, but I think Paul is depending upon the context here, on the rest of the paragraph, to fill out what he means by effective. Effective to do what? And in effect, what we're going to find, the whole rest of the paragraph is talking about exposing the true nature of my spirit, the true nature of my heart. The true nature of my heart can be hidden. It can be obscured. It can be covered over. But what's effective to expose the true nature of my heart? The gospel message that gives life. The life-giving message of the gospel, by how I respond to it, is going to find out what really makes me tick at the deepest, most fundamental level of my being. Those people who want to know God, who want to serve God, who want to love God, are going to respond to the gospel in one way. Those who really don't want to know, love, and serve God are going to respond to him in a very different way. And how we respond to this life-giving message, then, is what Paul is calling a very, very effective measure of which kind of person we are. Are we the one who is destined for eternal life, or are we not? Are we one who has a heart that is oriented toward God, or are we one who has a heart that's not oriented toward God? The gospel message is going to find us out. I think that's what he's talking about. And that's the effectiveness that he's talking about. This life-giving message of God is indeed effective. It is sharper, in fact, than any two-edged sword even penetrating so far as the dividing line between soul and spirit, between bone covering and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Okay, there's a lot of confusing concepts in there. Let me see if we can take them apart. The basic idea, I think, is clear. It's this life-giving message from God is so sharp that it's able to draw the line, cut the line between thoughts and intentions of the heart that are oriented toward God and thoughts and intentions of the heart that are not oriented toward God. This is what's going to find out which is going on in the thoughts and intentions of a person's heart. Okay, but how does he make that point? Well, he makes that point by making an analogy. He talks about a two-edged sword. Now, I don't know anything, some of you may know more about weaponry than I do, I don't know what this weapon is, but I do understand that there was a short, broad sword that the Roman soldiers used that was sharp on both sides. And I don't know this from any other context, but what I would infer then from the way Paul is using it, it evidently was a kind of sword that could literally slice a limb right off, cut through bone and everything. So they could just take a swipe and cut your arm off and the thing that I'm going to say is interesting, the thing that's interesting about that is what it does to the bone. It exposes the inside of the bone. And we recognize that the human bone otherwise is a strip of bone marrow, which is the inside of the bone, completely encased and completely covered by the bone covering. You would never know the condition of the bone marrow unless you sliced the bone open because it's going to be covered up by the bone covering and you'll have no clue what's going on inside. This is before modern instruments, right? But you'd have no clue what's going on on the inside of the bone. So it's only going to be exposed and open to inspection once it's sliced open. Well, what can slice a bone open? 
well, one of those wicked two-edged swords that's sharper than, than can be that the Romans wield. That could do it. And what Paul is saying is, that's what the gospel is. The gospel is like one of those swords that slices us in half and exposes our insides, brings our insides to view in a way that otherwise they would be covered up and hidden and unavailable to us to inspect. But the gospel is going to find us out by splitting us open. Okay, now I hope you're following me. I don't literally mean slicing me in half and looking at the insides of me physiologically. It's a metaphor. And so what's the analogy he's making? Well, he makes a distinction between soul and spirit. The spirit is like the marrow of a bone. The soul is like the bone covering of a bone. The only thing you ever see of a human being, typically, is the person's soul. Now, don't think like we may have been grown up in the church accustomed to thinking. The soul is not an organ of the body. The soul is not a part of me. It has no ontological, metaphysical reality in and of itself. That's not the way to think of soul. Soul means a person. It's that if I were dead, I'd just be a body, a corpse. But I'm not dead. I'm alive. This corpse is animated by something. Well, what is it animated by? It's animated by the incredibly complex person that I am. I think, I desire, I do, I act, I choose. And all of that goes into making me the person that I am. That's my soul. My soul expresses itself through the body. But there's something even deeper to who a human is than their soul. And that's what Paul calls the spirit. Who I am at the level of my soul is so complex that there are many factors that contribute to who I am and what I do, how I act, how I choose, how I think, how I talk, how I relate. Many, many things enter into that. My culture, my education, my training, my diet, how I'm feeling. <laughs> Just There's all kinds of inputs that make me right now the person that I am right now. Many of those things are completely irrelevant and insignificant with respect to my destiny and with respect because they're irrelevant to my relationship with God. Only one of the things that input into my soul, into my person, has relevance to my destiny and my relationship with God, and that is the state of my spirit, the condition of my spirit. Well, if all you have to look at is what I'm saying, what I'm doing, how I'm acting, how I'm talking, if that's all you have to go on, do you know the condition of my spirit? No, because I could have a rotten spirit and cover it up with all kinds of language. I can say what I know that you expect me to say. I can do what I know what you expect me to do in order to impress you that I want to know God. I want to love God. I want to honor God. I want to serve God. So I talk pious talk, and I do pious things, and I just follow the script that I believe is going to convince you that I'm okay with God. I can do that and be at the depth of who I am an unrepentant rebel against God. Okay. What's going to find me out? What's going to expose the true condition of the deeper most part of what makes me me? What's going to find that out and expose that? Well, one, he's going to go on here in a second. Let me go to the next verse. Indeed, there is no creature hidden before him, but all people are stripped naked and laid bare in the sight of him before whom there will be an account. On the one hand, God, who is God and who is the judge of every human creature, is not fooled by nothing. We are all laid bare to him. He's got Superman x-ray vision, and he can see right to the inside spirit of who a human being is without any effort. So if we think we're hiding from him, we're fools. We've got another thing coming. He can see the true condition of my heart, no matter what kind of bullshit I put in the way in what I do and what, how I act and how I talk and how I choose and so on. So everybody is laid bare to him. But it's also the case that something that becomes more available as evidence to even us 
is how we respond to the gospel, Paul is saying. Preach the gospel to someone and see how they respond. Do they harden themselves against it in one way or another? Do they reject it in one way or another? Do they only accept it by modifying it and changing it before they will accept it? Do they accept it only on their own terms? Or do they accept the gospel as it came from Jesus and the apostles straight and confront it as true and embrace it? We can only do that if God has so oriented my spirit, my insides, deep inside, such that I'm responsive to it. Every other human being is going to either deflect the gospel, defy it directly, or use some kind of subterfuge to substitute the gospel that came from Jesus with my own gospel and believe that and pretend like that's belief, pretend like that's good enough. We're going to find some way to deal with the gospel other than just embracing it. So Paul is arguing the gospel message is a real touchstone to what's going on at that level of what makes me me that counts, the level of what he calls my spirit. Okay, one final comment, and then I'll open it up for questions or comments you might have. We have to remember when Paul is writing this. Paul is writing this in the first century AD. There is no institutionalized church. There is no worldwide movement that has taken off and has got wealthy and powerful and respectable and anything else of the sorts. To be a believer in this time gets you nothing but grief, sorrow, and abuse. That's why he wrote it, right? That's why he wrote this thing. Because the Jews have come to believe in Jesus, they're getting beaten up and thrown in prison and killed and marginalized in society, and they're growing weary. This is just not paying off. I'm taking a lot of abuse by being identified with Jesus. I'm not sure it's worth it any longer. So that's the cultural context within which he's writing, and I think it's very important that we remember that. If Paul were writing today, would he write this paragraph? I don't think so. I don't think he could, because in the day in which we live, the pure gospel message as such is not nearly as effective a measure of somebody's heart as it was in the time in which he wrote this paragraph. It was actually pretty black and white and pretty straightforward back when he was writing. You either believe or you don't believe. You believe, you get beat up and by a whole boatload of grief. But you believe it anyway because your heart is right and you want eternal life. Or you don't believe, and why would you not believe? Because you're not a child of God. You're not born of God. So it was a relatively accurate barometer in his day and age and culture, a relatively accurate barometer of where a person's spirit was at. But in a lot of water go under the bridge since he wrote this paragraph. And we live in a time and place where Christian culture has been, this is changing, obviously, very dramatically changing. But for millennia, to be a Christian was relatively easy. And there are all kinds of perks that you could get by being a Christian that had nothing to do with your heart being right with God. If you play your cards right or play your cardinals right, you could be Pope and have all the wealth, all the power, all the authority, all the honor that goes with that. Or if not that, you can be Pope of your little community church or your little Baptist church or whatever. Or you can be the most pious person in the church without office, without title, but you can be a well-respected person within your culture. You're not going to have abuse heaped on you. You're going to get honor for being a Christian. Well, what kind of evil lust might find that attractive? I don't really care much about God, but I sure like to look good in your eyes. And that then becomes the carrot. That then becomes the motivation and the attraction to my soul to be Christian and do Christian stuff. So it becomes a lot harder in a time like the times in which we live to tell when the gospel is distinguishing the person who is responding out of a spirit that is right with God and the person who's responding out of some other kind of evil motives. And remember the account in Acts where 
Peter comes along and lays hands on people and there's these dramatic effects as the Spirit of God signals the fact that they are believers who receive the Spirit. A man named Simon Magus says, how much would it cost to learn how to do that? Well, that's pretty crass, but we do the same thing. We're capable of doing the same thing. I don't really much care about truth and I don't really much care about God and his purposes, but hey, this is a good, you've got a good gig going here. <laughs> Can I get in on that? That's my soul responding, not a right spirit responding. Okay, let me open it up to questions or comments you have. I have two questions. My mm-hmm. first is, are the words for spirit and soul pneuma and zuke? I believe so, yeah. Do you think that those are used similarly throughout the New Testament? Similarly to here? Similarly, but not necessarily. I think here he's using them as technical terms to make this distinction. I think there are other places where they come closer to being used interchangeably because all they're doing is referring to a person. So like the inner person? Uh Uh-huh, yeah. So I I wouldn't count on it always meaning exactly what it means here. Okay. My second question is, I noticed that you translated it well, I'm reading in mine, but it's, and before him, no creature is hidden, uh-huh. instead of before it, like it was, so that the antecedent would be the living message. Mm-hmm. Is that how the other English translations mm-hmm. have? Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. So wow. I was wondering okay. why not just carry it through. Um, I don't have my Greek with me, so I didn't know if it was a different pronoun or something. Well, largely because I think the language, I don't remember. Okay, yeah. See, it's literally in his eyes, and I was, that's why I couldn't remember whether eyes was literally in the text. Okay. So in his sight is in his eyes. I don't think that's the eyes of the gospel. Mm-hmm. I think that's the eyes of the judge. Okay. And so I suppose you could take it that the first one is the gospel and the second one is God, but it seems like the second one has to be God. Okay. the one before whom there will be an account. And working backwards, I just think he's, they're working, those two sentences are working together. There's no creature hidden before him, but all people are stripped naked and laid bare in the sight of him before whom there will be an account, which I think is our judge, is God. Okay. Do you think... What she's asking is, the Greek word is ambiguous. The Greek word could be translated either him or it, depending upon what the author means, what the antecedent is. So... It's not immediately obvious whether you should translate it him or it. You have to look at the nature of the sentence and decide from there. And that, that I've decided it's him. And I know that this would go against all the, your, everything that you've been proposing up to this point, but do you think that working backward from that statement, that there's that the word of God or the logos of God could be referring to a person as well, like Christ or Christ? So then, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Well, that's the decision we have to make. Is it possible? It's possible. But then, where is he coming from? Then this is just dropping completely out of the blue. And it's not at all connected with what he's just been talking about. When he speaks to you, do not harden your hearts, which I think is the context in which he's saying this. When he speaks to you, do not harden his hearts. Well, what is it that he spoke to me? His logos. And what Logos has the whole book of Hebrews been talking about at this point? The Logos of the teaching of Jesus, the gospel of salvation. I'm just exploring this possibility because I'm just curious about Uh it. Can Logos, like somebody's Logos, be... Because you just like said the teaching of Jesus, and that made me think, could... And he's saying he spoke to us through his son... Could there be like a play on words that Paul might be doing where he's using Lagos to kind of reference Jesus and his teaching as kind of a, a unit? So he could play with the imagery of it being a message, but it also being a person who gave the message. And so there you can have you can have this image of the message being a sword, but the person is a judge or something like that. I don't know. My mind's going crazy. (laughs) So spell it out for me. How would you make that work? So if Lagos was standing in for Jesus and his message, kind of this idea of the person who came, and part of what he did is he gave us 
this good news through his life, through his ministry, through everything that he did. So he and his activity, this Lagos, is going to make this kind of judgment about people in their response to him slash his message. Okay, so in the final analysis, what's doing the dividing? The message or the person? Well, in the... Let me see here. I mean, I understand that you're saying it's both, but Mm. ultimately you can't see that. When it comes to biblical interpretation for me, clarity is absolutely critical, it seems to me. And the way we reach clarity is when we get to a point where it could mean this or it could mean this, don't ever allow yourself to say it's both, unless one of the options is both. (laughs) That gets complicated. But unless in some meaningful sense the both is a unit, so that I can use my language to point to the unity of both of those things. But if, as I try to create a picture of what he is describing in reality, what is the reality that he's describing? Is he describing Jesus judging me, or is he describing the gospel judging me? And if it's Jesus judging me, then the logos primarily means Jesus. If it's the message judging me, then the logos is denoting the message. But I mustn't allow myself to say, well, but he was the messenger of the message, so can't it be kind of both? Well, yes, it's both. Any way you take it, it's both, because he's the one who brought us the Logos, both in that sense. Both are are essential to the picture. But when I write a sentence, I have one or the other in mind. I don't have both in mind, even if both are part of the picture. I'm not being very clear, but... I think I get what you're saying, though. Yeah. Okay. So, no, I don't think I can rule out of hand that the Logos is Jesus, in other words. No, I, I can't rule that out of hand. But it fits better in the context if he's making a transition from, what's the last thing he said? Therefore, let us be eager to enter that rest in order that no one fall by the same pattern of stubborn unbelief. Unbelief in what? In the message that you have heard. When you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, is how this started. So don't fall by practicing the same pattern of stubborn unbelief that your fathers did. So believe the promise that God has given you. They didn't, you don't follow their pattern, you do that. That's the last thing he said, the life-giving logos of God is effective. Well, isn't he connecting it with exactly what he's been talking about? this message that has been given to you that you dare not harden your heart against. You need to respond in belief. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And what you were saying kind of sparked a side question that, in my mind, that might kind of clear this up for me. Do you think that Paul is talking about the message that he gave to these people that they believed? Or do you think he's pointing beyond himself backward to everything that has been spoken about Jesus, and but primarily what Jesus himself kind of testified about himself. Yeah, beyond of. himself. Okay. To that which was revealed by Jesus. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. So you may have just said this, but I, I'm still a little bit confused, um, partly because of the good conversation. So the message judges us, or the message... Uh, I'm sorry. Sit. Okay, so the message... The life-giving message mm-hmm. judges us. Yeah, and what do you mean? It's a, obviously a, it's what we would call a metonymy. If I said the White House called, I don't mean the piece of architecture called me. I mean someone connected with that piece of architecture. That's called metonymy, where you take something connected with something else and use this to stand for the something else it's connected with. So the message is connected with my response to the message. So what really is effective is my response to the message. That's what's really the telling, that's what's really exposing me. So the message is the touchstone, and how I relate to the touchstone is going to be all important for revealing who I am. I think that's his point. You may have just, I don't mean to be picky, but you said that, that our response or is the effective thing. Did you mean to say that? Or do you mean that the um, message is well, effective in exposing? Effective in exposing. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay. That's what he means. Okay.
Thank you. Then if we go down a little further, then it's actually talking about nothing is hidden from God's sight, and that it's his eyes before which we're accountable. So in a way, it's all of, it's lumping Jesus and the message and ultimately God to this judgment because we're accountable in God's eyes. Yeah. Is that? Yeah. See, they're all part of the picture, but not all of those things are said in the same sentence. That's the point I'm making. When you get to the last statement, he's talking only about God, God who is our judge. And God doesn't even need the gospel message for me to be exposed and laid bare before his eyes. He doesn't need to proclaim the gospel to me and see how I respond to it. He can see the condition of my heart just because he's God, right? But Paul is tacking this on to a section that's talking about you need to be careful how you respond to the message that's been proclaimed to you. How you respond to that is going to be telling about what's going on in your life. Telling to whom? Well, to you, not to God. God doesn't even need that to know. But it's going to be telling to you. It's going to reveal something very important about you to yourself and potentially to other people around you in their context. It's going to reveal whether or not you have a heart for God or not. Okay? Did I just step all over a memory verse that you liked? You know that verse in Revelation where it says that it pictures Jesus with a sharp sword coming out of his mouth? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that... I think, it may, I think it may very well be related to this. Exactly. Yeah. That the message he proclaims is like a sword. That he may very well even have this very image in mind. Okay. One of the implications of the last thing I said, that I don't think Paul would write this if he were writing today, the point I was making about the significant historical and cultural differences that put us in a different situation and therefore make it not as clear our response to the gospel is not as clear in our context as it would have been in Paul's context. One of the implications of that is whenever we take a statement like this and absolutize it, we get ourselves in trouble. And so coming from the Baptist tradition that I did, we absolutized like crazy. If you believe, then you're saved. Well, you don't act like a Christian. You're not thinking like a Christian. You're not choosing like a Christian. Yeah, but when I was six, I believed And once you believe, you're saved. And once saved, always saved. That's just how it works. Notice the processes going on there. We're taking true statements, statements that the Bible truly makes and truly teaches. But the problem is we're not appreciating the context in which those statements are made. So we just make them absolutely true in every time, place, culture, any time in history. Well, did we get permission to do that? When Paul wrote this, Is he at the same time telling me, and if you're reading this in the 21st century, it's exactly true for you as well? He never says that. He's not writing to us. He's writing to them. And what he's writing to them is true with all the straightforwardness that he expects it to be true when he's writing to them. But they live in a different time and place and culture. So we always have to dial in the different historical circumstances we're in in order to appreciate the actual point that he's making and how that point relates to my situation in my life and in my culture. Otherwise, we're going to get ourselves in trouble. Just to get clarity now, because now I think I understand what you're saying. If a person was honest with themselves, the message would still be like a a sharp two-edged sword, cutting to the the division between the soul and the spirit. But are you saying that in our time and place today... It's too easy to shine it on and still... So you're not really... It doesn't really challenge you in a social setting? Did back then? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm not saying the gospel doesn't challenge us today in the same way it challenged them back then. But what I'm saying is it's not nearly as effective in exposing the true condition of my heart as it was back then. So what makes the difference between now and then? because now we have a lot more soulish resources for covering it up. My true response is a lot easier to hide today than it would have been in their time and place. Our bone covering is a lot thicker. You want to chime in on this? I think he feels it's as if God doesn't bring us the same challenges that they had to face that an apostle could walk among us and be able to pick out the same people that he would pick out then. No, I think an apostle could. 
even the apostles can't do so infallibly. Mm-hmm. Paul can't do so in his context infallibly, but because of his wisdom, because of experience with faith, an apostle is going to be in a much better position to discern those subtle little indicators that this is not for real, this is not authentic, that you and I don't likely have the sensitivity to be able to tell the difference. There's a whole lot of faking going on, is what I'm saying. There's a whole lot in Christianity of me studying the Bible in order to create a script for myself, in order to know what do I have to do and what do I have to say and what do I have to say that I value in order to make it look like and make it appear like I'm a child of God. Well, just say this and do this and value this, or at least say you value this and so on. And I don't know you. You don't know me. Not really. So all you have to go on is what I'm giving you. All you have to go on is how I'm presenting myself to you. And if I'm really skillful at presenting myself to you as a child of God, I'm going to look like a child of God to you. So as far as you're concerned, I'm a child of God who is motivated by a heart and a spirit and a set of desires to know and serve and honor my creator. Because it's calculated to make you think that that's what makes me tick. That's why I say what I say. That's why I do what I do. That's why I act the way I act. But God's not fooled by that, is his point. God can see through all that chaff, all that dust that we throw out there, and to what's really motivating me and to what's really making me tick. To summarize all that, I think why gospel is not as necessarily a good litmus test today as it is now is in those days believing in Jesus was lose-lose situation, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so it was like if someone professed uh, openly that they believed in Jesus, it was... Custom. Exactly. And even if someone was faking it, it was like, Why would someone fake that they would be believing in Jesus? What is there to gain by faking in doing something that is going to cost them? Exactly. Thank you, Michael. That's the answer to your question, Roger. It's not that we have more available to us. It's that it's exactly that question. Why would someone act like a Christian without actually being a Christian in their context? We can easily imagine in our context, or at least we used to be able to imagine in our context, why you would do that. Yeah, now probably starting in, definitely today, and probably starting maybe as early as, uh, definitely by the Middle Ages, maybe as early as the second century, uh, this is just a guess, or at least when Christianity was institutionalized, I'm not exactly sure when. It's, that, that was when uh, there was the starting point for when there was benefit in faking that you could being a Christian. Right, yeah. But it's already actually happening in the pages of the later part of the New Testament. Remember when we were looking at First John, Diotrephes, who loves to be prominent among you, has blocked the people sent by the apostles with the true gospel because he's got an agenda. He wants people listening to him, dependent upon him. He likes to be prominent among you. What John is saying is, what's motivating him? A love of truth and a love of God? No, this incredibly selfish glory-mongering is what's making him tick. And he's found a Christian community as the context within which to seek glory. Well, that's a different motivation, and that's not a motivation that brings eternal life to somebody. The kind of belief that believes out of glory-mongering doesn't save It's only a belief that is rooted in a desire to know and honor God that saves. So there's a danger that people can look like believers and they're not, and they're fooling other people. But isn't there also a danger of fooling ourselves? Mm, Absolutely, absolutely. Because it's so easy to be called a Christian now. There's no risk, no danger. Mm -hmm. And not really being totally committed to the truth, but just fooling ourselves into thinking that we are. Yeah, that's a great point. If I try to fake others out, why am I trying to fake others out? Because I'm trying to fake myself out, usually. If I can get you to think I'm a believer, and then you give me all kinds of feedback (laughs) that you're a believer, 
oh my, what an obedient, my, how great your faith is, that's what I need to hear. Because I want to believe that I have faith. And I want to believe that that secures my destiny and I have eternal life and everything. And so it's kind of a, it's this loop that I create where my real agenda in the final analysis is self-deception through deceiving others and let them be the prop to help me prop up my self-deception. People said at the end, at the judgment, will say, well, didn't I do this in your name? Exactly. Didn't I do this in your name? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Exactly. That's a scary thought, yeah. that we could so totally deceive ourselves. Yeah, yeah, but that's how wicked our hearts are. And that's why Paul is constantly warning us, guard your hearts, be on guard, beware, because we're capable of even faking ourselves out. Good, thank you. That was it. Then how can you be sure? How do you know then? How can you be sure? How can any of us sit here and know? Yeah. If we try to know by introspection, we're going to scare the hell out of ourselves. Not through introspection. Everywhere that the Bible speaks to that issue, it's about God is in the business of giving us evidence. In Peter, he describes it as more precious than refined gold. The testing of our faith is more precious than refined gold. Why? Because knowing who I am and where I stand and therefore what my destiny is, is a wonderful, wonderful gift. But it's something that God does through life circumstances. He takes us through trials and tests, and we pass those tests. And as we pass those tests, then our confidence that grow, I get it. I belong to him. My destiny is set. One of the things that we don't give enough value to is God is saving me for his purposes. And his purposes have been set from before the foundation of the earth. So once I get evidence that God's purpose is to bring me into the kingdom of God, that's good forever. That's the thing about the Baptist, once saved, always saved, that's inherently right. That's a true insight that gets abused. But this is not about me deciding my fate. This is about God having determined my fate from before the foundation of the earth. So what I need is for God to give me evidence through my life experience that his purpose is to save me. So can you give an example of that evidence? When God puts me in, it's called, they call it trial or testing. And what I would define as a trial is when I find myself in a situation where there's something about the situation that either has the power to drive me away from the faith or the power to attract me away from the faith, and I don't do it. And I look back on my experience and I say, I have no clue why I stayed a believer, why I continued in the faith. I have no clue. There's one and only one possible explanation. God had me in his hands and wasn't going to let me go. Otherwise, the reason I'm still believing is inexplicable to me. And I was there. I know the pressure I was under. I know how tempting it was. I know how compelled I was to tell Jesus to go to hell. But I couldn't do it. And the fact that I couldn't do it can only be explained by God's purpose for me. That wasn't his purpose for me, is for me to split. God's purpose for me is to finish the work that he started and complete it to the end so that one day I will stand sanctified before him. And we can get that kind of objectivity on our life through, through becoming a spectator of my history, not through the introspection where I go, okay, am I sincere? Let me find sincerity in me. You can't do that. I believe. Do I really believe? Introspection is not going to tell me if I really believe. But life is going to show me because the trials and tribulations of life is going to demonstrate that I really believe. Because if I didn't really believe, I would have split at that point in my life. So you think our choices are not really our choices, they're evidence that God is prompting us down his path. Exactly. God, who is the author of our very being, is also the author of our choices. And so the choices that I make are going to reveal God's purposes for me in a meaningful kind of way. Let me give an example from my own life. I was a sophomore in college. Some of you have heard this, and I'm sorry to bore you with this, but I was a sophomore in college, 
This was in the 60s, right on the threshold of the Jesus movement. And I was a real active Jesus freak activist, Christian activist on campus. I would go out to the White Plaza at Stanford University, which was the free speech, and I'd give messages, harangues, calling people to Jesus. You had to be there. It worked in those days. So from my own perception, I'm a believer. I'm a good guy. I'm one of those. I'm a friend of God. I'm the kind of person that God would take care of. So at that point, I was a physics major, and I had a midterm in a physics class, and an intermediate-level physics class coming up. And a guy came down, knocked on my door, and said, I'd like to talk about Christianity with you. And in those days, evangelism was a huge big deal. I mean, if you were a faithful disciple of Jesus, then you were an evangelist. You saw evangelism as a priority. So I didn't really have a choice given my own self-concept, I couldn't say, can we talk about Jesus tomorrow? I've got to study for a physics exam. That was not available to me to do. So I realized that, okay, this is in God's hands. He, obviously, this is a divine invitation to serve him in a particular way. So I went upstairs to his room, and we talked into the wee hours of the morning about Jesus, the gospel, and the faith. So I came down about 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning, and I thought, okay, I could study for the exam, or I could go to sleep. And there was a part of me that said, God, I scratched your back. You'll scratch mine, right? Isn't that how this has to work? I did what you want me to do, so you're going to take care of me, right? So I went to bed, got up the next morning and began to review a little bit, which was a mistake, I think, but I started to review a little bit, went to the exam, and in retrospect, I think I understand what happened. In retrospect, I went to the exam completely feeling no confidence at all and insecure because I had never in my entire life gone into a test not prepared without having adequately reviewed beforehand. And I knew that I had not adequately reviewed, so I was scared to death. And because I was so scared to death, <laughs> my brain literally, I mean literally froze. I got half of an equation written down in the blue book and an hour later turned in half an equation because I couldn't get my brain to unlock. It was locked tight. I couldn't think at all. Now, what you have to understand is my grade point average was my God at that point in my life. Why did I exist in this world? To get a good grade point average. What was the reason for, what was my purpose in life? To get a good grade point average. It was everything to me. My significance, my worth, my reason for existence as a human being was all wrapped up in there. And God had taken my idol and just crushed it with his heel. And now I was faced with the question, okay, this God that you're serving, Jack, you were obedient to him. You were serving him. You were doing what God had asked you to do, right? And what did he turn around and do? He crushed you. And for about a week... I was so turned inward, it would have been interesting to have a video camera of me during that week. I was a zombie. There was just nothing. I was just a shell as I was focused inward to try to figure out, can you let God do that to you? Are you going to follow a God who would so destroy your life in the way that he's destroyed your life? And I, to this day, I don't know what happened, except the Friday of that week, I went into my dorm room, I flopped myself on the bed, and I just started weeping. I wept and wept and wept probably for about an hour. And at the end of that time, I sat up, and something had been really clarified and resolved in my mind. Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Where else am I going to go? Now, I cannot explain why I made that decision rather than curse God and die. I have no explanation for that, except that He owned me. And from before the foundation of the earth, his intention for me was to take me ultimately into the kingdom of God, to sanctify me, to give me wisdom, to make me wise, to give me understanding, and one day take me into the eternal kingdom of God. That was his plan for me. And it became, that's one of the things. It's not the only thing. I, I had harder tests that I faced later, but... That was the first really hard test that I faced where I looked back on that and went, I must actually believe this stuff. I must belong to him. And so I said to people before, it hurt like hell, but it hurt good to go through that experience because 
even though it was painful, incredibly painful to me, at the same time, it was meaningful. It was significant. And the meaning of it felt good because what it meant to me is you're not just playing around. This is for real. You really belong to him. So it's that kind of thing that I always think of when the Bible talks about tests and trials. is that kind of testing of where I'm going, who I am, what ultimately is making, defining my destiny. Did that? Okay. Well, we're at the time. We'll do the second paragraph next Sunday.